Hey, 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 Northridge Church. Can we thank the Wake Creative? This is Chloe, by the way. She has been my host all weekend long. Amazing job. She's made sure that my microphone's on. She walks out with my, uh, you know, this little music stand. Since Pastor Brad is taller, she lowers it to the very bottom for me. Can we give Chloe a hand again? I mean, thank you. God bless you. You're so great. I hope that you've been blessed by today. Uh, A mentor of mine always says that um, we don't change a generation, we raise a new one. And in weekends like this, when I see Roxanne and Marissa and the creative team really take a hold of this next generation of leaders, and whether it's on stage or behind stage, whether it's uh, in a very invisible type opportunity like Chloe's or something a lot more visible, uh, giving them a chance to exercise their faith, worship by bringing their talents and gifts to the Lord is so interesting and it's so, um, it's such a gift to me. I don't know about you, but it blesses me. And so God gets all the glory, but can we just again thank Roxanne and Marissa and I think over 40 staff that poured into um, this generation. It's great to be with you. We are in a series called In With The New and uh, you've got two more weeks of this series as we're beginning the new year And uh, next week, Pete will be back to kind of wrap up the series. But I figured since uh, I'm up to bat one more time in this series, I would bring to you the most in with the new Bible verse I know. So out of 71,000 passages of scripture, you know, in in a Bible, uh, to me, the passage that we're going to look at today epitomizes what it looks like after God has made us new. And as we look at this today, it's a really, really simple passage. Honestly, it's what I, what I like to call a, a mug-worthy passage. It's the kind that ends up on Christian mugs at Christian bookstores. This is the kind of passage where if you've got a top three most memorized Bible verses in, in the Bible, this will probably show up on that list. And, and it's a passage that a lot of us know, but don't let the similarities to it or don't let the, um, the simplicity about it fool you. It is robust with theology. It is a tsunami of truth. In these verses, a theologian that I was reading said this, in this one particular verse, he said that we see the theology of justification, substitutionary atonement, eschatology, which is the theology of end times, the doctrine of imputation, and so much more. If you're going, what does all that mean? It simply means this, this verse packs a punch. And there's weightiness to it. And and before we read the verse, I kind of want to set it up by giving us a little bit of context by talking about who God used to give us this verse 2,000 years ago and who it's to. This verse is Pauline theology. And so what I mean by that is that there's a man by the name of the Apostle Paul who wrote 13 books of the New Testament, a fourth of uh, the Bible, and, and, and the pen that we're about to read, God's the ultimate author, but the pen that we're about to read that God uses is this man who had an encounter with God. And I think if we can just take three, four minutes to talk about his encounter with God, it, it will help us understand the weightiness of the statement that we're about to read. The first time that we see Paul in the Bible, uh, he is an enemy of the gospel. And so I don't know what you know about the Apostle Paul, but the Apostle Paul, to me, is a hero of the gospel. He's a hero of the faith. I mean, when you think about the Apostle Paul, by the way, that word in its very essence actually means the word small. The last thing I think about is 
small. I think about a giant, right, in our family scrapbook as the people of God. I mean, can I just say this about the Apostle Paul? Probably the most quoted person ever in history. I mean, Jesus is the most important person ever in history, but he's never going to, not even Jesus is ever going to get caught up with the Apostle Paul. Think of including our gathering right here, the millions of people who will gather in a church today and open up a New Testament and read Colossians, read Ephesians, read, you know, books and, and, and just, just uh, you know, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And so the Apostle Paul was this missionary. He was this church planner. He, he was this, this uh, theologian who God used in a tremendous way. And, and the, the beauty of his story is that the first time we see him in Scripture, He's not this apostle Paul that traveled 10,000 miles on foot, you know, declaring the, the glory of God and, and, and was shipwrecked for the glory of God. And there, there's a moment in scripture, by the way, where they hired 40 assassins just to go and shut him down. And so the man that we're about to talk about is not the man who was in the Mamertine prison and eventually was as a Roman citizen taken outside the city walls and beheaded for his faith, this hero of our faith that, that literally has stained glass windows around him and, and people name their kids after him. The first time that we see him in scripture, he's actually at a place called the Lion's Gate and he's an enemy of the gospel. The first time that we see him, he is a mastermind behind the murder, uh, the martyrdom of a guy named Stephen. Stephen was a missionary who was converted by the gospel. And when Jesus changed, I mean, it just completely like took over the life of Stephen, Stephen decided this is something that's too good to keep to myself. And Stephen started to travel and Stephen started to share this good news that, that we had the old law. But now there's this new law that's been given to us. There's this new person that's come. The Messiah that we've been waiting for is here. And everywhere that Stephen went, he was preaching specifically to Jewish people, specifically to, to very religious people that, hey, you've got 634 do's and don'ts in the Mosaic law. But guess what? I'm bringing you not the Jewish law, but the newish law. How you like them apples? And the newish law... The newish law is telling you two things. Maybe the old Jewish law was don't commit adultery, but the newish law doesn't lower the standard. The newish law says if you commit adultery, even in your own mind, it's the same thing as physically doing it. And so you thought you're having a hard time keeping up with the list of 634 do's and don'ts. Even if in your spirit you do the right thing, but you do it for the wrong reason, is just as much. You're in a lot more trouble than you think. And so the standard was like amped up even more, but then he comes to remind us that really the whole idea of the law, the whole idea of the standard was to remind us that we can't and we need someone to do it for us. And so Stephen's traveling and he's preaching this gospel that the Messiah has come to fulfill the law. The Messiah has come to, to bring salvation to people. And, and everywhere that he went, he was preaching this truth. And honestly, the first time we see Paul, he hears that truth and as a religious zealot, he's angered by that truth. You really want to hack somebody off? Get them in a moment where they are climbing this ladder of trying to do all the right things to, to get closer and closer and closer, higher and higher to God, and then peek down from the top of the ladder and go, you're climbing the wrong ladder. And if they put a lot of muscle, they put a lot of spiritual energy into it, They've exhausted themselves and they feel like they're ahead of everybody else, but then ahead of everybody else means like you're striving, but it's not going to get you anywhere. You're really going to anger them. And so they couldn't stand. Forget in with the new. 
these people were in with the Jew. <laughs> and then Stephen comes in and he says, it's not about the Jewish law, it's about the newish law. And the newish law is this, this person who wants to make you new. And I'm telling you, the Apostle Paul hears that and he wants that message shut down. It's questioning everything about his existence. And so the first time we see him, he is literally at the lion's gate and he is not stoning Stephen. He's standing there while everyone's coat is by him because he's probably the ringleader. He's probably the, the, the guy who's the mastermind behind it as a, as a leader. And, and all these coats are there and he's watching them stone Stephen. The second time we see him, that's Acts 7. In Acts 8, he goes on the Damascus road to literally, the Bible says, take out the people of the way. The people of the way is how they, they labeled Christians back then because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And so, so Paul is a part of Stephen's murderdom, and after he's uh, martyred him, and then after he's on the Damascus Road, he's going down to silence and stifle and, and imprison and persecute other Christians. And on that Damascus Road, the God of this universe invades his life, and he literally has not just a moment of revelation, but a moment of conversion. And everything about his life becomes what we know today, the Apostle Paul to be. And so I'm giving you this backstory to say, that's the Paul that we're about to read. But check this out. He becomes a Christian at 35 AD. And about 22 years later, most theologians believe he's on a church planting moment in his life, season of his life. And he plants this church. He leaves Greece and he goes, he leaves Athens and he goes to a place called Corinth and he plants this new church and he stays there for about 18 months, longer than he stays in any other of his church plants. And he gets the footings right. He plants this work and he thinks it's going great. He leaves there to go to Syria, modern day Syria, to plant another church. And not long after he's gone, he basically finds out through a letter that the church that he had just planted at Corinth has turned into a dumpster fire. <laughs> And that they have come off the rails. They have lost their first love. There's a lot of stuff that's going on. There's a lot of spiritual a spirit of a superiority that's reared in his head. There's a lot of sexual sin that's being committed. And all these things that, that, that immature believers would get themselves caught up in. Or religious people who call themselves believers would get caught up in. And so Paul writes these letters. We call them First and Second Corinthians. But they're actually four letters. In the sense that we don't have his first letter in the Bible. His second letter we call 1 Corinthians. We don't have his third letter and his fourth letter we call 2 Corinthians. And this morning we're going to look at a passage in 2 Corinthians where that Paul to that church and not just to that church but to you and I simply says this. Paul says, therefore, therefore, if any man is in Christ, behold. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, behold, the old has passed away, for you are now a new creation. So what's interesting about this is the source, the source is a person who was a religious fanatic, and all of a sudden he says, it's not about religion, but about redemption. It's not about trying and trying, but about trusting. And all of a sudden, he's bringing us this reality that if, if what God promised is true, if you've ever given your life to him, if all of that's true, if resurrection power lives in you, if you've been reconciled with God because of what Jesus did, therefore, 
If you are that, you are a new creation because the old you has passed away and a whole new you is walking around. And then he throws in this word that he likes to say 82 times in those 13 epistles that he gave us. He says, you are in Christ. Paul is obsessed, by the way, with those words, in Christ. Because he knows that it means the same thing back then that it means today. This morning when I say in Christ, what I'm saying is that the essence of the Christian life is that those of us, those of us who are Christians are in Christ. See, life is all about whose hands you're in. And when I say in, if you're taking notes, I mean, the word in means possession. The word in means ownership, means trustship. And so life is all about whose hands you're in. Uh, let me explain it. Like, um, for example, um, if you take a five iron, and I say five iron like I know what I'm talking about. I don't play golf, all right? I asked somebody and they told me, say five iron. Or if you get a big Bertha, apparently that's like a big uh, golf club driver that's very expensive, all right? Or, or a putter or whatever, a wedge, I think they call them, you know, whatever. But if, I don't play golf. I'm from Iran. I played golf like three times my whole life. Every ball I hit ends up in the sand, Iranian. I don't know, whatever. Anyway, so, that's, so I'm just saying, so, so I don't, but if, if, I, if you take a golf club, you put a five iron in my hand, a big bertha in my hand, a wedge in my hand, if you put a golf club in my hand and you get me out there, it's not only worthless, it's probably negative dollars because I'll take out a window, <laughs> right? I'll bruise a brother on accident. I'll hit somebody on accident. I will hurt somebody and have to like get sued or pay their you know, medical insurance. I'm just telling you, if you put a golf club in my hands, it's worthless. If you take the same golf club out of my hands and put it in Tiger Woods' hands, every swing has a lot more value. It's all about whose hands that club is in. You take a basketball, put it in my hands, worthless. You take the basketball out of my hands, put it in Michael Jordan's hands. I found out something about Michael Jordan this morning. I was looking it up. $330 million in Jordan Nike royalties alone last year. And I'm talking about a guy who's got retaining water knees, all right, and, and probably hasn't played back. Michael Jordan, every year, selects, there's a waiting list. He selects three people that win the lottery of getting to play basketball with him for about 30 minutes. The, the, the million dollars, by the way, is the price tag, but for a million dollars, he will fly his own jet over, so you get that, and you get a pair of signed Jordans. So how you like them apples, all right? So you get that. And so Michael Jordan will fly over, and he'll hang out with you and take a couple selfies with you and, and get to, like, maybe, you know, break, a meal, uh, you know, break some bread with you, and then he'll play basketball up to, up to 30 minutes with you and up to four of your friends for a million dollars. So put a basketball in my hands, worthless. Take the same basketball, put it in. Jordan's hands, and apparently last year, his arthritic hands were worth $330 million. So it's all about possession. It's all about who you're in. So what Paul is saying is, put my life, my destiny, my faith in me, put it in my own hands, and it's destructive. Put my life in the hands of religion, and it's destructive. It's going to be futile. But if you put me in the hands of Christ... I go from hopeless to hope. Does that make sense? So Christianity, at its very essence, is who we're in. And Paul, who was in religion, deeply in religion, Paul, who was deeply in good works, says it's not about that, but it's about him. It's not about what you do, but who you know and who you belong to. See, the Christian life is all about whose hands you're in. I, I love this uh, quote from A.W. Tozer, who um, was a pastor in Chicago in the mid-50s. 
Tozer says the Christian, the Christian has quiet literally, this is the believer, the, the person in this room who says there was a moment in my life when Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven, stepped into my life, became my Lord, became my Savior. He's saying the Christian has quite literally exchanged weakness for strength, but the strength that we receive is not our own. It flows into us from God as we abide, and there's that word again, in Christ. Uh, if you're taking notes, here's what it basically means. The Christian life, and I like that word that Tozer uses, is about exchange. It's about you and I coming, and it's the worst exchange rate ever for him. But God comes into this moment with us and meets us right where we're at, and he exchanges the old and makes us new. The Christian life, at its very essence, is in Christ we exchange death for life. In Christ, we exchange rules and we get the ruler. In Christ, we exchange doing. That's what religion is, right? It's a to-do list. Do, 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 do. It's exchanging doing for being. It's exchanging trying. Trying, man, I got to get up and I got to muster this up and I got I to gotta try harder and try harder and try harder. I got to clean this up and I got to stop saying that and stop thinking that and stop watching that. It, it's, it's exchanging trying for trusting. It's exchanging working. And if, by the way, all your religion is, if all your faith is working, let me ask you, how's that working out for you? <laughs> Works doesn't work. It just leaves you exhausted and leaves you feeling defeated. But it's exchanging working for worship earning for yearning. And beloved, here's the best one of all. It exchanges obligation, I have to, for God, with affection, I get to, with God. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is you and I coming to a place where we say, Jesus, I want you to be my everything, and everything that I am isn't about me getting a list of stuff I do so that I can earn your favor but what you have done so that I can have your favor. And my life doesn't become about workmanship, but about worship as an act of workmanship. Not because I'm earning it, because it was given to me. So everything about my life becomes about the evidence of a Jesus who lives in me, right? The evidence of a Lord who's taken over me, not just being in me, but being through me. And that's the Christian life. A few years ago, I uh, went to speak for a rally for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. There were, this, uh, there were these three years of my life, three, four years of my life, where uh, almost every year I would speak 15 or 20 times for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And I got to tell you, they, they were incredible, incredible ministry. Uh, and it was such an honor to get to work with them. What was interesting about working with them uh, was that uh, whenever you would be booked for a Billy Graham crusade to give your testimony or a pre-crusade rally or whatever for Franklin Graham or Dr. Graham or whatever, uh, th what they would do is they would secure the date with you on your schedule, on your calendar, and then the next week they would send you um, a booklet. And in the booklet, they, they would purchase your, they had their own travel agency. They would purchase your airline tickets. They would make your hotel arrangements. They would make your rental car arrangements. And they, it was, it was just so meticulous. They, like, they're just such a great organization that they just crossed every T and dotted every I. And, and I say that to say, one time, uh, I went to speak for them for one of the many rallies that I was going to be a part of. And uh, I went to the airport. I, when I got to the airport, I knew my flight was at like 8.30, 9 a.m. or whatever. I looked at the folder that they had sent me. And, and it said that, you know, here's like literally the 
ticket was there for me. It said that like, I was going to fly to Atlanta and from Atlanta to Greenville. So that's what I did. You know, I go to Greenville, and when I got to Greenville, I went to baggage claim to get my bag, and I opened up my little folder that the grand people had sent me for, with the agenda, and it said on, in the folder that once you arrive in Greenville, what we'd like for you to do is to secure your bag and then go to this wall by baggage claim at the airport where this wall had these buttons you could push, and beside every button, uh, there was a picture of a hotel, and it, it literally had a direct dial when you push the button that took you to this hotel. And so my instruction said, secure your bags and push the Hilton button. And that's a pretty common thing at the airports by the baggage claim. And, and the shuttle service will come and get you, and they'll take you to the hotel. So that's what I did. I got my bag. I, I pushed the Hilton button. Sure enough, this uh, sweet lady answered the phone. And uh, I said, hey, I'm here. And she said, we'll be there in about five minutes, the shuttle service, so, to pick you up. And I went outside. I, I got the shuttle service. I get to the hotel. And when I got to the hotel, uh, th what, I walked up with the confirmation number. But the, the lady that was working there, she said, hey, welcome. Um, this isn't going to be an issue for you. But I just need to tell you that our computers are down. Our IT guy is here to try to fix it. But while he's fixing it, it might take a few hours. And so um, I'm going to have somebody from security let you in a room so you don't have to sit here for two hours in the lobby and wait on us to get our, like, our you know, stuff in order. But uh, later on, I'll take your name and everything with, in a sticky note, and I'll properly check you in. And so I get in my room. It's like around noon. I'm getting picked up at like 5 or 6 o'clock, you know. So I've got six hours to, to kill. And if you're wondering what does a preacher do by himself six hours, I'm sure Brad Powell memorizes Leviticus and King James because he's just so holy. But guys like me, I'll read my Bible a little bit. I'll send some emails. I don't know. I, I pluck my eyebrows because if I don't, it turns into a visor because I'm just so hairy. Whatever. So I do what I got to get, get done. And so I, 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 at 6 o'clock, like, like my little instruction pamphlet said, my little folder said, I go to the lobby and I'm waiting to get picked up. So at six o'clock, you know, no one's come to get me. At 6.10, no one's come to get me. 6.15, no one's come to get me. 6.20, no. And again, I'm telling you all this to say they're so punctual. They're so like every little thing is meticulous. So I'm like, where, where are they? And so I open up my folder, see the number. It's my friend Danny Little who ran all the youth events for the grand people. And so I call the number and he goes, hey, bro, where you been? And he goes, I'm, I'm at the hotel and I'm, I'm looking for you, uh, and, and they say you're not even in the computer. And I said, oh, that's because they had some you know, issues with the computer, and that's why I'm not in the computer. But I said, man, but I'm in the lobby waiting on you. And he goes, well, I'm in the lobby. I don't see you, and it's not a big lobby. So I'm just kind of standing there, and I, and, I, and I walk right to the front desk. I, like, literally lean on the front desk, and I go, well, bro, I'm at the front desk. And he goes, well, I'm at the Hilton front desk. And as I'm saying that, the lady who's working behind the counter reaches over the counter and taps me on the shoulder, and she says, baby, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you need to ask your friend what Greenville he's in. And as soon as he said that, I didn't even have to repeat the question. My friend heard her, you know, on the phone. And so he yells, you're not in Greenville, North Carolina? And I wasn't. They had flown me, y'all, to Greenville, South Carolina. <laughs> Which is why I front-loaded the story by telling you they bought the airline tickets. And so I look at the lady, and before I could answer, she just starts laughing. And this other employee comes out from this back room, stands right beside her, and she looks right at him in front of me, and she goes, we got another one, which is basically shorthand for, you're an idiot, but you're not alone. 
And then she says to me, you will not believe how often this happens. People fly to the wrong Greenville all the time. I've learned since then, by the way, there are 36 Greenvilles in the United States of America. And maybe that's all right, but there should not be two Greenvilles in two Carolinas. You know what I'm saying? And so she looks at me and she goes, I know what you want to know, baby. How far is it from this Greenville to the other Greenville? I said, yes, ma'am. She goes, it's about four, four and a half hours. She goes, what time do you need to be there? I said, in about an hour. She goes, well, you ain't going to make it, baby. And normally that would be the end of the story. But like I told you, this is the Billy Graham evangelistic associate. This is like the Christian mafia. All right. And so he listens to, he looks at me. I mean, my friend tells me on the phone, he goes, David, he goes, man, we've got a rally with like 7,000 teenagers about to start. You need to get here and just see what you can do. Can you fly private? Can you do a helicopter? And so I hang up the phone. I look at this lady that, that's at the front desk. And I said, ma'am, uh, I, I would like to figure out if I can charter a jet. And so she's looking at me like, well, I've seen this before, but I ain't never seen this before. And so she gets out this thing called the Yellow Pages. Uh, those of you that are here, to, to ask your grand, great-grandparents what that is. And, and so she gets it out, and we start calling an A, under aviation, everybody that we can possibly get that might have, like, private charter, private aviation. And about five, six calls in, this elderly gentleman answers the phone. I say elderly, like you could just hear on the phone. He was like, hello. He sounded elderly. Like if this guy's in aviation, he might just be one of the original Wright brothers who invented flight, you know? And so I'm like, yes, sir. I, I, and he, they don't know me. I said, sir, my name is David, but I, I have to be in Greenville, North Carolina. And, and, I, and I have to be there in a, in a like, it's really short span of time. And I was wondering if you could fly me there, how long would it take? He goes, well, it's about a 45 minute flight. I said, great. I said, it's less than an hour. He said, yes. I said, sir, if you can get me to that Greenville, I need to go there. And whenever we land, you can hand me a bill. I'll hand it to them. They're good for it. All right. And I, I said, but here's the thing. Can you help me? And he goes, yes. And he was just a sweet gentleman. And, and he said, I'll help you. And so I, I hang up the phone. I tell the lady who's at the hotel. I said, I, I found a way. And, and she gets the shuttle guy. And he doesn't take me to the airport. He takes me to the airport behind the airport. And I was supposed to go to like Hangar 11. Well, I get to Hangar 11, and I get out, and, and, and he comes out, the gentleman comes out, and we're just looking at each other for just a second, and he was so kind, and he goes, well, come on in. And so we go in, and he's got his dog. His dog was Bear Bryant. That was the name of his dog. And so we go, and, and I was thinking I'm getting this jet, but it was this tiny little, like, death mobile, all right? It was this sardine can. So I climb in. Bear Bryant, the dog, jumps in. This gentleman, like, he gets in, and we start going down the runway. And we are going, and I'm looking at my watch going, if we land, it'll start, but the music can go for a little. They can add a few songs. And as we're going down the runway, right before he's about to pull up, he stops. He slows down and he turns around and looks at me and he goes, I just checked the meter and I need to add more gas. We don't have enough fuel. And I said, yes, sir, fuel would be a good idea, all right? And so, so then he goes all the way back to Hangar 11. He gets out, Bear Bryant jumps out. He goes in there, he finds his key because he's the one who's got to go unlock the tank to get the gas. Then Bear Bryant couldn't be anywhere to be found. And he's going, come here, Bear Bryant, come here, Bear Bryant. I'm looking at my watch, we're running out of time. And then finally, Bear Bryant gets in. We go all the way to the back, he gets out. Bear Bryant gets out again. He, he unlocks the thing, he puts tank, gas in the tank. He all of a sudden, he gets in and as we got in I realized like now we have basically made sure I'm not gonna make it and I looked at this gentleman and I said sir you've been so kind you've been so gracious I'm so thankful for you but I said but I gotta tell you we're just not gonna make it I'm so sorry that I wasted an hour of your time and he was so 
awesome. He was like, no, it's okay. And, and I, I, I had a hundred bucks. And I was like, let me just give you this. And he didn't even want it. I was like, please, it just makes me. And, and, and then he gave me a ride back to the same Hilton. And I laid there that night while the rally was going on four and a half hours away. And I'm just flipping channels. And I remember having this thought. And the thought was simply this. You know what is worse than not being where you're supposed to be? You know what is absolutely worse? It's horrible when you're not where you're supposed to be. But you know what is so much worse than not being where you're supposed to be? Having this false sense of security where you're thinking, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. They told me to go to Greenville. I was in a Greenville. They told me to go to a Hilton. I was in a Hilton. They told me to meet him in a lobby. I met him in a lobby. So all day long, I was at ease thinking, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. If I had realized I wasn't where I was supposed to be, then I could have autocorrected. But the only problem, the biggest problem in not being where you're supposed to be is thinking all along, I think I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. Now, why am I telling you that story? Number one, because it's funny. All right, but number two... Number two, because this is exactly the essence of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's saying to a bunch of religious people, some of you think with God, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. You're a bunch of religious people, and you, it's all been about change. I mean, we planted this thing 20, you know, 20 months ago, 18 months ago, I came in here, we planted this thing, and some of you got into this religion. You, you kind of drank the Kool-Aid, got all up into this religious thing, and it was just this thing where you try to change and change and change, but he's reminding us in this passage that the Christian life, don't miss this, is not about changing. See, religion is about change. Behavior, modification, change. The Christian life is not about change. It's about exchange. Exchange. It's about identity. Identity, not behavior. And Paul is saying that. And I know you're hearing this and you're going, well, what do you mean? It's Greenville to Greenville. It looks the same on the outside. Change on the outside looks like I'm not cussing as much as I used to. I'm writing a tithe check. I, just, I, just, I'm, I got my t-shirt to go make a million meals. I'm doing this and, and I'm volunteering childcare and I'm, I'm singing these songs. But it's always been about like changing your behavior. Jesus is a behavior police going, don't watch this. Don't say that. You were kind of mean. All this. And that's how it feels. And it's always been about change it's not been about exchange. It's always been about duty. It's not been about delight. It's always been about trying. It's never been about trusting. And on the outside, change and exchange look almost the same, but they're oceans apart. And Paul is saying, some of you feel like you're at ease. You're right where you need to be, but you're not. You're nowhere near where you need to be. It's oceans apart. You know, my wife is here. She's, um, somewhere in that section with my daughter. And, uh, and I love her story because it so resonates with this. She was a bit of an Apostle Paul. She grew up a good Southern Baptist girl, you know, and, and, and she was a leader in her youth group. And when my, my, when my wife was 16 years old, they put her on the pastor search committee of her church. Only teenager in the back. She, she grew up tithing as a baby, you know, like they would give her a quarter and she'd drop it in the bucket. She, she was just, this, she's not perfect, but I mean, she was very like in the youth group, went to everything. She volunteered for every youth group event, every college event. She went with the senior citizens to Branson, you know, and, and volunteered with that. She was this good girl. She was Bible drill champion. I've seen the ribbons. This is back when you had to earn ribbons. Everybody just didn't get ribbons, all right? And so she's this good girl, this religious girl. And my wife was a counselor one night, a counselor at a crusade, at an evangelistic event at the Bama Theater in Tuscaloosa. 
And as a counselor with a counselor badge on, breath mint, number two pencil, card, ready to like, like lead someone to Christ, my wife walked down the aisle during the invitation and instead of being a counselor, walked up to her youth pastor and said, hey, I need to give, I don't need to be, she took off her counselor badge, I don't need to be a counselor, I, I need a counselor. I, I need to give my life to Christ. And her youth pastor looked at her and said, you're the leader of this youth group. And she said, you're right, but I'm always leading, but it's always been about doing. It's never been about trusting. See, when I got saved, and when I say saved, you're going to save from what? Save from myself, save from religion gone wrong. When I got saved, it wasn't Greenville to Greenville. Like nobody went, you're not already, a, you, you, I knew I was nowhere near. My entire life was just completely unraveled. Everything about my life was completely, when I became a Christian, nobody said to me, you weren't already a Christian? They were like, I go, I became a Christian. And they were like, we'll believe it when we see it. I mean, that's how lost I was. I mean, honestly, when Paul becomes a Christian, God tells this man Ananias to come and visit Paul, and, and, he, and, and Ananias is like, uh, do you know his reputation? <laughs> this is the guy we're all trying to hide from. You want me to go seek him? When I got saved, it was like that. People just were like, this guy, this, this partier gave his life to Christ. But when my wife got saved, it, it was very Greenville to Greenville. She was a good girl. She sang worship songs. She was in the choir. She wrote a tithe check. She volunteered for everything. She came early. She stayed late to vacuum. All of these things that you do. But on the outside, it didn't look that different. But the next day after she truly gave her life to Christ, he went from religion to redemption. Because look at me. Christianity at its core, it's not about dirty people becoming clean people. It's about dead people becoming alive. That's Christianity. And that's why Paul says, if any man is in Christ, behold, behold, of all the things that they're now doing in their behavior. No, no, that's not what he says. Jesus doesn't say, I have come so that you might have great behavior. He says, I may, I've come so that you might have what? Life. And if anyone is in Christ, in Christ, possessed by him, we come to him and we go, it's not about me trying to climb the ladder to you. It's about you climbing the ladder down to me. And all I do is receive. Now, you want all of me. You don't want just parts of me. But I don't have to clean up any of it. I come just as I am. Somebody ought to write a song called that. <laughs> And I bring all the brokenness and I bring all the religion gone wrong and all the trying and all the excuses and all the inconsistent. I bring all that to you. And then you turn ashes to beauty, death to life. God brings in hope. And he says, and I'd like to do it. I'd like to do it by coming in your heart. That's why the last this for this exchange was from obligation to affection. Because what he's after more than anything else is not your works, but your heart, beloved. And if your heart soars for him, if your heart is obsessed with him, if he becomes your God, then it's no longer about I gotta, it's I wanna. And obedience just becomes an evidence of you going, I'm not doing this stuff so I can earn your favor. It's like, I want to do this stuff. Why? Because I wanna honor the one who gave me this for free. Anybody here in a love affair with a husband or a child, mama right here with you, like you don't, you don't have to do stuff for your daughter. You want to do stuff for your daughter. Why? Because love, it's about affection and not obligation. Obligation is not bad, but you know what? Obligation is not bad, but affection's better. <laughs> Religion's all that, not really all that bad. 
The law is not that bad. The law is not bad. Like, I'm not against, law isn't bad. You know what was so much, what's, you know what's 10X on law? Law is not bad. Love is better. So much more power. And what God is saying to us through this passage is, hey, in with the new doesn't mean like out with the old, in with the new list of stuff to do. But do you know him? Do you belong to him? Does your heart have affection for him? Can I get you just wherever you are to bow your heads with me for just a second? Listen, I'm not going to ask you, do you go to church? You're either watching online or on our Brighton campus or here, and you go to church. I'm not asking you, are you hospitable to the idea of the gospel? I know you are. You're not hostile. You didn't get up and walk out when I read 2 Corinthians 5.17. But the question that I'm asking you is, maybe today, in this moment, you're hearing me, and maybe your story was like me. You're saying, David, you don't know how bad I've been, and I want you to know that you'll never be too bad for the power of the gospel. But maybe today you're hanging on to a list of all the things and you're like, I think I'm right where I need to be. And it's always been about all the stuff you do. And it's never been about all the stuff that Christ has done. Listen, don't miss this. We are saved by works, beloved. But we're saved by the completed works of Jesus. We come to him and say, you paid it all. And so if you've never truly surrendered your life to him, could it be that today God has before the foundation of the earth, predestined this moment as your homecoming. And so the only people on stage that are leading aren't the only ones that are youthful. Maybe God wants you to have a youthful heart today and he's saying, uh, come home, come home. And so if that's you, I just wanna pray with you. If, you. if you wanna maybe give your life to him, not your behavior to him, not just Sundays to him, not certain compartments, but all of you to him, if you go, Jesus, you lived a perfect life. You died a sinner's death. They put you on a cross to pay the penalty for my sinfulness. Then they put you in a tomb and then you rose from the grave. And I want that resurrection power. I want to be put to death with the old and raised to new by what you've done. I plead not just guilty in the courtroom of life. I plead Christ. If that's you and you want to accept maybe for the first time for real, I'm just going to pray a sentence. And if you agree with it, in your spirit, you can just repeat it in your own heart to him. Prayer is just a conversation with God. And so Jesus, I know you're real. I want you to be real in me. I know you're God. I believe you when you say, I and the Father are the same. I know you're God. I want you to be my God. I know you're a savior, so save me. I need saving. I can't save myself. Maybe even save me from religion and bring me to redemption. I receive the gift of salvation. You are the great substitute. You are the sacrificial lamb. You did on the cross what I had coming to me. So I received that gift. Everything about my life now doesn't become about like doing all of these things to, to keep it going. Everything about my life now becomes about just trusting you. Let the evidence of what you gave me for free live out in my life as a, as a life that is worshiping you. Now listen, look at me. If you prayed that today for the first time, or maybe for the first time for real, since I got a microphone in my hand, I get to be the first to say, welcome home, all right? <laughs> welcome home. It's amazing. And, and can I just say this? We want to um, record that and celebrate that with you. 
Uh, and so if you today ask Christ to step out of heaven, to step into your life, to, to exchange the old with new, uh, all you got to do is if you get your phone out is text the word Northridge, the word Northridge to 31616. And it'll take you to a landing page that has literally 30 seconds worth of your name and the decision that you're making. And the reason I, I want us to record it is because we just want to come around you, celebrate with you, help you take your newness in life to the next stage and growth. And, and there's just material we want to bless you with and gift you with and, and, and say you're now a part of the, the family of God, the community of God. And so welcome home, but you don't have to be at this alone, all right? And so if you'll just text, uh, our team will know. If you're watching with any of our campuses, uh, there'll be a prayer team on the front if you want to talk to someone and maybe you have more questions even today. And so, man, may the Lord bless you and keep you and uh, shine His face upon you. Next week, uh, we'll tie up this series uh, as Pastor Pete comes, so we'll hopefully see you then. Man, God bless you, and um, go with the Lord. Amen.